was just a little bit different than Kansas. They weren't, the, they weren't the same thing. Very different experience. Looked totally new to her. She realized that, that her experience in life had not prepared her to understand what was going on in us. It turns out if you'd spent all your life in Kansas, you would not have the tools you needed to sort out what you were looking at in us. So she knew. Something's a little different. Now, look, I don't tell you that story this morning because I'm a huge Wizard of Oz fan. I'm not. Like, please don't ask me what comes next. I don't know. That's as far as I can go with the Wizard of Oz. I tell you that story this morning because we're going to watch Jesus in, in his ministry run into some people who are consistently trying to use their understanding and lay it on him, and it don't, it don't make no sense to them. And Jesus is going to help them understand the Lord's doing a new work. This ain't Kansas anymore. Read the, read the text with me, and we'll dig in. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch the garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Okay, we're going to pause right there for now. Let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, uh, we do come to you admitting our dependence on you to be at work in us in this moment. Lord, uh, we can read your word. But Lord, apart from your illumination, we will not understand it or respond to it the way that you want us to. So Lord, we ask now for the gift of your Holy Spirit's illumination that we might see and actually be conformed by the word that we explore in these few moments. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, verse 14. The disciples of John came to him saying. Now look, these are the disciples of John the Baptist, right? You've run into John the Baptist before. These are people who are following him. And here's their question for Jesus. Jesus, why do we, the disciples of John the Baptist, and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now again, if you remember anything about John the Baptist, Surely it wouldn't surprise you that he's a man kind of given to fasting, right? I mean, he lives out in the woods. He wears this camel hair, hair garment. He's got a belt of leather around his waist. And when he does eat, he eats stuff like locusts and, and honey. So, like, it probably doesn't shock you that he'd be the type of guy who would fast every now and then. Pharisees, they fast all the time as well. There are people who are particularly interested in this. They fast very strictly two days a week. It's become a very kind of legalistic, ritualistic thing for them. And again, if, if you remember anything about the Pharisees from what we've seen in Matthew, that probably doesn't surprise you all that much 
either. Fasting is a big deal in the ancient world. Every, everybody's doing it. And as we've already seen in Matthew, we've talked about fasting a little bit. Maybe what you recall is the purpose of fasting. Fasting is when you, for a time, just don't eat food. And what that's intended to do is create a sense of hunger in you. And that hunger is supposed to lead you to seek the Lord. And you say things like, Lord, I haven't eaten in 12 hours or 24 hours or, or 36 hours. I, I come needy and hungry, but more than I want to eat, I want to see you work in this situation. I want your will to be done in this situation, maybe in my life, maybe in the world around us, because something's not right. Something's not right, and we desperately need you to be at work in that situation. So with that understanding, the people then ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, like, why? Why don't y'all fast? And Jesus said to them, verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus' answer, boy, this is not time to fast. It is, it, there's seasons for fasting, but it ain't right now. The bridegroom's here. The wedding guests are with the bridegroom. Not a good time to fast. Uh, you've probably been to weddings before. Don't fast at a wedding. You don't do that. I've never fasted at a wedding in my life. A wedding is supposed to be a time of enjoyment, a time of celebration. So you don't fast. You feast. You, you eat. I'm getting married in just a few months. Y'all are all going to be invited to the, the ceremony here. If you're a member at Grace Chapel, you'll be invited. We're going to save you a seat at the reception. We're going to feed you dinner. It'll be a great time. And I'm just here to let you know, if I catch one of y'all fasting, it might hurt my feelings a little bit. It's a celebration. Like, like I'm happy. I, and so if I'm going to invite you to come and celebrate with me, like what I need for you to do is at least act like you're happy. So come and, and, and eat and enjoy the food. Like that's good. That's normal. That's customary. You don't fast at a wedding. Really, really simple logic. I trust you get that. Don't miss the complex thing though. Because there is something a little profound kind of hidden in here that you might not see if you're not reading this pretty closely. God, all through the Old Testament, calls himself the bridegroom. Isaiah, chapter 62, verse 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And here's Jesus saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. Don't be fasting right now. It's not the time to fast. God has taken up flesh and is dwelling with his people. It is not the season for fasting right now. There ain't nothing missing. Like all is right with the world right now. The Lord is with his people. John the Baptist, his disciples, they don't quite get that. They're still working their way through that, still figuring that out. And Jesus says, here, here's, here's why you're missing it. He gives them a little illustration here. Verse 16. Hey, no one puts... A piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. Again, you get that, right? You don't go putting new cloth on, that needs to shrink on old pants that have already done their shrinking. I'm working through that right now. Okay, my second favorite pair of jeans, I've already given up on my first pair. Uh, my second favorite pair of jeans, I ripped a knee out of them a while back, right? And I did what any uh, good son with a good southern mother who knows how to do all this stuff does. I said, Mom, can you fix these pants? And so she put a 
patch on my pants. But I'm just here to tell you, those pants had no shrinking left to do, and apparently that patch needed to do a little bit of shrinking, and so consequently, like, wardrobe malfunction, as sophisticated folks would say, right? That's been my experience. Don't put old, new patches on old jeans. Simultaneously, the, the same illustration you're getting with the wine and the wineskins. If you take old wineskins that have already done all their stretching and all their expanding, and you fill them with new wine that needs to do some stretching and need to do some expanding, likewise, you're going to have a wineskin malfunction, right? Those things are going to burst. You're going to spill the wine. You don't do that. You do not take the, the, the old paradigm and try to lay it on the new thing. The point is, brothers and sisters, the Lord has done a new work. This ain't Kansas anymore. And in as much as people keep trying to treat Jesus like he's running Kansas, Jesus ain't going to make no sense to them. Because the Lord has done a new work among his people. Now, maybe you don't get that. Maybe, maybe you're like, I would really love a few demonstrations to help me understand that. Fantastic. Because Matthew's going to give them to you. He records what the, the miracles that Jesus is about to do in light of that point, And he really wants you to understand that they're connected. If you don't believe me, verse 18. While he was saying these things to them. So Matthew's saying, like, pay attention. This is connected to what I was just talking about. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now you read that, and maybe you're familiar with that uh, from other gospels, you're familiar with the account of this event in other gospel accounts. And what you'll notice is what we've noticed already with Matthew. He does his thing where he streamlines it, right? Other gospels will tell you what the ruler's name is, what he's the ruler of, tell you how old a little girl is. Matthew says, nope, my, you know my MO. I'm going to tell you what you need to know to get the point I'm trying to make. And what he tells you is, hey, there's this guy, and he's got a daughter, and she's dead. And what he wants to see happen here is he wants Jesus to come and touch her. And if Jesus will come and touch her, he's convinced that the little girl will be healed. That's the scene for you. That's what Matthew wants, wants you to be aware of, wants you to know. And so while they're going, this happens. Verse 20, because Jesus gets up and goes. Here they go. Verse 19, they're going. But then, verse 20, behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. So again, same thing, right? If you're familiar with this from other gospels, you're going to notice Matthew streamlined this thing down a little bit. Maybe you can even remember some of the exchange that Jesus and the lady have from other gospels. But Matthew's sticking with his MO and he's saying, look, here's what you gotta know. There's a woman. And there's this woman who's got this issue of blood. And she's had this issue of blood, this discharge of blood for 12 years. And in case like, you missed that in translation somewhere, 12 years is like a long time to have a discharge of blood. Long time to have an issue of with bleeding. And so she comes and she touches Jesus's garment because she's convinced that if she's able to touch it, she's going to be made well. And Jesus, upon her touching his garment, he, he turns and he says, take heart, daughter, calls her daughter, that's important. And then he says, your faith 
has made you well. And indeed, she was made well because the text says instantly she was made well. That's what Matthew wants you to know to get the point he's trying to make. So, Matthew, you're saying that's like, it's all I need to know. That's all I need to get is those few points right there, and I will understand what you're saying. Well, well not, not quite. Matthew's assuming a little bit of prerequisite knowledge on, on the part of his readers. In fancy terms, that's what that means. We got really good reason to believe that Matthew's primary readers, like people who would have initially read Matthew, were Jewish. People who would have known the Old Covenant really, really well. Let me keep my metaphor going. People who knew how stuff worked in Kansas really, really well. And the people who were familiar with the Old Covenant, how stuff was supposed to work in Kansas, they would have read this. And an absolute blinking, flashing light would have gone off in their minds, and they would have known. Leviticus 19 says you can't do that. Leviticus 19 says that that lady... Because she's had this prolonged discharge of blood, she's unclean per the old covenant law. In Kansas, she's unclean. And in Kansas, if Jesus touches her, what you would expect to happen per Leviticus 19, old covenant law, is that Jesus would then be made unclean. But brothers and sisters, that's not what happens. Because this ain't Kansas anymore. Jesus touches the unclean lady, and instead of the unclean lady making Jesus unclean, Jesus is so clean and so pure and so perfect that he now makes her clean. He makes her whole. She's now a daughter of Israel. She's welcomed back in the fold. All things are right, brothers and sisters. The Lord's doing a new work in Israel. This ain't Kansas anymore. 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house, And he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away. For the girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, uh, maybe you read that and you got lots of questions. You don't really understand what's going on. That's fine. It's because you're not from Kansas, right? People who are in Kansas, people who lived in old covenant law, this made lots and lots of sense to them. In this culture, at this point in time, when somebody died, believe it or not, you had to do stuff kind of quick. So what you end up with is kind of a sense of a funeral right there in the midst of the house, at the home. And you got this crowd there, and particularly you got these flute players here. That's, again, probably strange to you as well. You probably don't go over to people's house while they're mourning, and you got people playing flutes. But again, in Kansas, you do. That happened. These people were like professional mourners. This is what they got paid to do. They got paid to come participate kind of in this funeral service. So they're here, they're weeping, and they're wailing, and they're playing their flutes. And Jesus rolls up into that scene where we've got these people mourning and he says, "Um, y'all go home now. She's not dead, she's asleep. Which the mourners are like, hold on, hold on a second, Jesus. They they actually laugh at him. They they scoff at him. What do you mean, Jesus? She's she's, She's not dead, she's asleep. We go to dead people's houses all the time, Jesus. We're professional mourners. Like, don't you think we know when somebody's dead? And even if she wasn't dead, like, she's not going to sleep through this. We're outside, like, raising a ruckus in front of her house. What do you mean she's asleep? Well, they, they missed it on just a few accounts, right? Number one, they've kind of pretty clearly broken character, right? They've been paid to come and mourn, and now they're laughing at Jesus. Secondly, they've missed Jesus' use of the word sleep. 
The word sleep or asleep or they were sleeping uh, came to be a pretty popular euphemism for death in the Christian worldview. You, you could be familiar with this from like 1 Corinthians 15. Paul uses the same word when he says, uh, he's talking about all the people, the 500 people who saw Jesus after his resurrection. And he says, hey, most of them are still alive, but some of them have fallen Asleep. Now, now, what he means by that is not that, yeah, there's a lot of people who are awake right now, but there's others that you're gonna, you just got to wait on them to wake up from their nap, and then you can, you can talk to them about seeing Jesus. He doesn't mean that. He means they're dead. They've already died. But he goes on to explain, even in that passage, because of the hope of the resurrection that we have, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, well, there's really, really, really good reason to believe they ain't going to stay dead forever. And that's how Jesus is using this word here. She might be dead right now. Like, Jesus knows she's dead right now. But brothers and sisters, she ain't going to be dead long. 25. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand. And the girl arose. She ain't dead no more. Jesus has done, woke her from her sleep. She was dead, and now she's not. And here's how she became not, not to be dead. Uh, he touched her. Now, if you're from Kansas, I mean, if you were an old covenant extraordinaire, uh, you would say, um, Jesus, you can't do that. The old covenant, Jesus says, you can't be doing stuff like that. Numbers 19 makes it really, really clear that that dead body, like the little girl who's died, she's unclean. She's so unclean that even the stuff in the house that she died in has got to be purified. And if she comes into contact with somebody, like whoever would touch her, they're unclean. And they're so unclean that even the people who would participate in the ritual to make them clean, well, they're now unclean. This is like as unclean as unclean can get. You don't touch dead people in the Old Testament. You don't do that in the Old Covenant. That ain't how it works in Kansas, but brothers and sisters, this ain't, this ain't Kansas anymore. Jesus is so clean, he's so pure, that he touches this little girl who should have made him unclean. But instead of him becoming unclean, he actually makes her whole. She's clean. She's restored. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has done a new work in Israel. This ain't Kansas anymore. And everybody knows it. Verse 26, the report of this went through all that district. They say, okay, new work, some news going on here. I got you. Could, I, I just, I might need a little bit more. Could you give me just a little bit more evidence that something new has broke out here in the midst of these people? I sure can. We've got two more chances to see it. The day is young, brothers and sisters. Take your time. We got food back in the kitchen. We ain't going to have service tonight. We'll get you a two-for-one sermon special right now. Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. If you were here on Wednesday night, you'll be familiar with that son of David phrase. We talked about it. It's something that we're dragging with us all through the Old Testament from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The people of Israel are waiting on the divine Davidic son, the one whom God has promised is coming to rule and reign over his people forever. And the people see what Jesus is doing. The blind people see what Jesus is doing and they say, that's him. There might be a lot of stuff we can't see, but that's him. 28, when he, Jesus, entered the house, the blind men came to him, 
And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Very similar to what you just saw happen with the woman with the issue of blood. She believed that Jesus could heal her. And because she believed Jesus could heal her, she sought him out. And the blind men have done the same thing. And Jesus turns and says, like he said to the woman, your faith. Your faith has healed you. According to your faith, be it done to you. And so they are healed. Verse 30. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Again, we've seen this happen before where Jesus is saying, don't go share this to everybody. Because again, at this point in time, what Jesus is trying to do, and he's not in the crowds for the sake of crowd, not in the numbers for the sake of numbers. He's trying to pace his ministry. He's not here to make a spectacle. He's here to make a point, right? And so he tells these guys, don't go and spread this. And whether it was through straight up negligence or outright disobedience, the blind men fail. Right? But you got to have a little bit of sympathy, right? I mean, if you were the person who'd always been known as being the blind man, and now you're not one of the blind men anymore, like, that's going to be kind of hard to hide. And it's a pretty big deal. It's a, it's, it's a really big deal. It's a messianically big deal. Because the Old Testament says, this is what you're going to see. When the Lord shows up to save his people, to do a new work among his people, you're going to see stuff like this. Isaiah, chapter 35, verse 5. This is written in the, this is like a part of a sentence in a passage that's talking about the joy that's going to be present when the Lord does this new work, the absence of pain that will be present when the Lord does this new work. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Brothers and sisters, all, all of a sudden, these blind men, they can see. That's what the old covenant says will happen when the new covenant comes. When, when, when the one you're waiting on arrives, this is the type of stuff that's going to happen. Blind people will get their sight back. Jesus is here, and all of a sudden, blind people are getting their sight back. Brothers and sisters, uh, the Lord has done a new work. This is not Kansas anymore. Do you need help? Do you still need to see it? All right, I'm going to give you one more last chance before I say we're through, and it's in verse 32. As they were going away. So again, connect those things. Like as they're going away, like we have not changed scenes. Like put all this together. As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. We've talked about demon possession just a little bit. We hadn't done a deep dive in it. It's coming. I promise we'll get plenty more opportunities. But what you got to see here this morning is when demons show up, destruction shows up. And the issue with this particular man is that he's mute. He can't talk. This is how the demon oppression has affected and afflicted him. Verse 33. No need to fear, right? Here, here, Jesus is on the scene. Verse 33. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Of course it wasn't. Of course it wasn't seen. It's never been seen in Israel because the Messiah's never been in Israel before. But now, all of a sudden, the Messiah's on the scene. And the type of stuff that's going to happen when the Lord shows up to save his people. I mean, when the Lord does a new work, those type of things are happening. There's a little text of scripture, maybe you're familiar with it. It's Isaiah 35, verse 6. 
The next verse, the end of the sentence, like here's what the whole sentence says. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. Check, we've already seen that. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The next verse after the blind people's eyes are gonna be opened in Isaiah 35 is mute people are gonna be able to talk. And Jesus is here and all of a sudden, mute people can talk. The Lord has done a new work in Israel. Brothers and sisters, like this is not Kansas anymore. And everybody can see it, right? I mean, I hope you can see it. How much clearer would it need to get? You've seen, you've, you've seen the text this morning. Jesus starts off by saying, look, the bridegroom is here. I, I'm here. I'm on the scene. I've taken up residence and I'm dwelling with my people. And since that's happened, here's what you're going to want to avoid doing. You're not going to want to try to mismatch your patches that you're going to put on a garment. Like, do not use the old covenant to interpret what I'm doing because it's not going to work for you. And, and don't use, don't, don't be putting this new wine into your old covenant, old wineskins. This, this ain't St. Kansas. And to prove to you it's not Kansas, we're not operating under the old covenant anymore. The Lord's done a new work in Israel. To prove that for you, watch this. And Jesus heals an unclean woman. This issue of blood for 12 years. She touches Jesus. She touches the fringe of his garment. That's, in, that's important. The fringe of his garment. That connects you back to the Old Testament as well. That's, that's what the Lord told Moses to say. Hey, put those fringes, those tassels, put them on the garment to remind the people to obey the old covenant law. The old covenant law which says unclean women shouldn't be running around touching people's garment. And in direct violation of that covenant, this lady acts and Jesus says, I am the covenant. Like, I, I'm the law. It's good. You're, you're a daughter. You're clean now. You've had faith. In me. How, how much clearer does it need to get? What if Jesus went and, and, and rose a little girl from the dead? Which he wasn't supposed to touch because she was dead. Per the old covenant. Like, would that make it clear? What about if Jesus went and opened the eyes of blind people the way that Isaiah 35 says the Messiah will? Or what if Jesus gave mute people the ability to speak the way that Isaiah 35 says? He'll do it. Like, when the new covenant comes, that's what's going to happen. Would that emphatically prove to you or what? that the new covenant had arrived. It would prove it to me, especially if I understood the old covenant. Like, the better you could understand the old covenant, the, like, the more obvious this would be. The more you knew about the law, the more plain and clear it would be to you that the Lord had done a new work among his people. Verse 34. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Pharisee. Thought about him last week. People who know, I mean know, the old covenant. Thomas, didn't you tell us that they knew the old covenant? Yeah, I did. Thomas, didn't you just say that the better you understood the old covenant, the more obvious and plain and clear it would be that the Lord had done a new work in it? Like, didn't you just say that? You must be lying about something. Or are they lying about something? Are they lying to themselves about something? Why, why wouldn't? Why wouldn't people be ready and willing to receive this new word? 
This new work's a beautiful thing, right? It's a work that hinges on and exposes the mercy and the grace of God. And that's the answer to the question. Because these Pharisees are not interested in the mercy and the grace of God. They've built their lives on a system of works and ritual observance. Jesus called them out on it last week in verse 13. You need to go and learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What God is more interested in than your ritual observance, than your ability to do what you've traditionally done, is you showing love and mercy to people who need it. Well, the Pharisees, again, have built their lives on that ritual observance and on that system of works. And so they're not interested in Jesus coming along and undermining their system of works. Jesus has poked holes in their worldview. He's going to continue to poke holes in their worldview. He's going to continue to show them over and over and over again, like, I don't care how righteous you are. The reality is you're still sinners. You're sinners against a holy and just and righteous God who owes you punishment for your sin, and you will never be delivered from that punishment by what you're able to do. The rest of the Gospel of Matthew is him showing them, you need me, not you. Brothers and sisters, I hope you hear that really clearly this morning. Like That's the same message that's available for us. The, the reality is that me and you are just like them. Like We are sinners and sinners against a holy and just and righteous God who owes us. It, it's only right for him to give us punishment for our sin. But the good news that Jesus shows up and lives out, the good news that the apostles turn around and proclaim is the reality that God, because of his great love for us and desiring to show his mercy, he sent Jesus. And he sent Jesus to live in our place and to die in our place and to be raised from the grave in our place that me and you can be reconciled to God. And the message that we, we proclaim is the same one that Jesus proclaimed. Like We get in on that by repenting and believing. By turning from our sin, letting go of that, and trusting in God, taking hold of God. Oh, indeed, brothers and sisters, it is really, really good news. How have you responded to that? Well, I'll tell you how the Pharisees responded to that. They blew it off. Not interested. Don't want it. Get it out of here. They couldn't take it. They, they would have had to have humbled themselves and said, we're wrong and we've been wrong about everything we've been doing. They would have had to do that to be able to respond to Jesus' gospel. And being as they were, people of a little bit of status, a little bit of clout, a little bit of sufficiency in themselves. Oh, brothers and sisters, the cost was way too high for them. They could not swallow their pride. They could not humble themselves. They could not admit they were wrong. And because of that, they were blind to the fact that the Lord was doing a new work amongst his people. This is our, our seventh anniversary uh, today here at Grace Chapel. So I'm just going to speak to Grace Chapel for a minute if that's okay. There are situations right now just like that. The Pharisees were people who would have rather held on to the wheel in a ship that was sinking than be deckhands and servants in a ship that would stay afloat. And so here's the application. And here's what you got to watch out for. There's churches in York County that are dying because of that. 
because they've got folks in them who would rather hold the wheel of the ship while the ship plummets into the depths of the sea than let go of the wheel and be servants on a ship that'll float. And I don't say that to you to create a sense of arrogance in us or to create a sense of pride in us. Heaven, help us if we become arrogant. we end up just like the Pharisees. I say that to you for two reasons. Number one, I want to encourage you to continue to develop a compassion and a love for other Christians in this area, a love for other churches in this area. I hope that you will catch a vision, like maybe I've caught a vision that I just would love, and I pray and I dream that the Lord would use us here over the years to come to be just some small part of promoting biblical faithfulness and health in in local churches in this community. I want to see that I pray you want to see that. I say that for one other reason. I just want to encourage you. I just want to encourage you to keep throwing wood on the fire we've got burning at Grace Chapel Baptist. Don't stop. Keep throwing wood on it. Brothers and sisters, I am a perfectionist. Okay, I'm pretty self-critical. I've got pretty high standards. But I can see clearly enough to say it's been a good year. It's been a good year of ministry at Grace Chapel. I've seen seen many of you grow. I've seen many of you develop more of an appetite for the word of God. I've seen many of you grow in your desire and ability even to share the gospel. I've seen many of you become even more more vulnerable and be willing to like let me in on your life and tell me as your pastor what's going on and how I can be praying for you and, and come to me for counsel. Like those are all really good things. And you say, yeah, Thomas, but they're subjective. You got anything else? You got anything objective that you can say to us that we could like point out and be like, it's been a good year? Yeah, I do. I've got a few things. Brothers and sisters, over the last year, we, we brought in 24 new members to this church. And, and I, don't, I don't mean like 24 people who showed up a couple times so we put them on a roll somewhere. I mean like 24 people who made it through an a membership interview with me who could explain the gospel to me and could tell me a little bit about their testimony. And then those 24 people, in their own words, either wrote it down or got up and said it, like told us as a church how they'd come to the Lord, what they thought the gospel was. And then you as a church turned around and said, yeah, we would love to have them as covenant members here at Grace. That's happened to 24 people who are still here. That's good. (laughs) That's a win. that's, That's a step towards biblical faithfulness. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we've been walking through this for for a long, long time. Over the course of the last year, we've rewritten our bylaws from the ground up. I'm talking about started with a blank Word document and have been writing our bylaws. We've worked through that process. We've had a lot of unity in that process. We've had some really good conversations in that process. We've thought through that process really, really well, and I'm happy to report to you. I've got a meeting tomorrow afternoon. You can be praying about it with a representative from the South Carolina Baptist Commission. That will mark the last step in this process before I give them back to you. It's my goal. It's my aim to hand you a copy next Sunday morning when you walk out of here. Lord willing, if everything goes well, we'll have new working bylaws by the end of February. You say, who cares? That's boring. Maybe it is a little boring, but what it represents is a massive step towards trying to structure this church the way the New Testament tells us to structure this church. That's really, really good, brothers and sisters. Like, that's gonna be important to our structure and our unity down the line. We need to do that. Praise be to God, he's given us the opportunity to do that. The Lord is at work. 
I'll tell you what else, brothers and sisters. Uh, y'all are looking at me, some of you, like the chicken's getting cold, so I'm gonna wrap it up right here. It's all we got, okay? But here's what I want you to remember. I, I didn't do this. It wasn't me. Y'all gave. I don't know if I've said this publicly or not. I don't know if any of you even know that. The finance team does. But y'all gave. $40,000 in excess of what we asked you to give so we could meet the budget last year. And I ain't, I ain't asked you to. I ain't begged you to. We still ain't passing the plates. I didn't even announce where the offering boxes were this morning. But like, this isn't us. The Lord is doing a work in our midst. And he's, I just want to emphasize that it's him. I want, to, I want you to be really, really clear that it's him. Like, it's not, it's not me and you. It's not me. It's not stuff we're doing. It's not, pro, it's not through programs. We don't have any programs. We hardly have any programs. You know why we don't have any programs? Because I can't find programs. I see preach and pray and congregationally sing and fellowship with one another and share the gospel. That's all I see. We ain't done it through no special events. It's our seventh anniversary, and guess what we're going to do today? We're going to go back there, and we're going to eat, and we're going to break bread, and we're going to fellowship with each other like born-again Christians have been doing since the beginning of the church. That's all we're going to do. I, I don't see, I've read this thing a few times, believe it or not. I don't see Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day, Fourth of July. Like we, I, I'm all about acknowledging those things and praying over those things, but reorienting what the local church does to conform to what the world tells us we ought to pay attention to, I can't find a license for that. All I'm seeing is preach and pray and congregationally sing, fellowship with one another, and share the gospel. So that's our plan. That's what we're going to do. Because it's the faithful thing to do. Brothers and sisters, like this again, I just want to make this really clear to you. It's not me. It's not you. We're not doing it. But what I can see, what I have the cool vantage point of seeing is the guy whose literal job it is to lead and to feed and to heal and to guard and to guide this church and to be concerned about our trajectory and what we're doing. Like What I can see from my vantage point is that between January 22nd of 2023, that was our last anniversary celebration, and today, January 28th of 2024, it's our next anniversary celebration, I think we've taken a massive step towards biblical faithfulness. I think we've taken some massive steps in the right direction. I think the Lord's positioned us to keep taking good steps in faithful biblical directions so that this church, this body, will be more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus, which glorifies God. So I'm happy to report to you that God is doing a work in us. I call that a success. I call that you want a relevant term, a winning season. It's good. It's something that we ought to celebrate. And it's something that ought to encourage us to keep going. Because the, glory, the Lord is being glorified in us. And because he's the one at work, he gets all the glory. The only thing I've done, the only thing we as a church have done over the course of the last year is taken a real hard look at the word and said, we want to do it that way. We want to commit to that. All I've asked you to do, all I've tried to lead you to do over the course of the last year is to commit to the book. The way forward is not in our wisdom. It's in his wisdom. Here's where we find the wisdom. Every last one of my eggs is in this basket. I'm all in on this. How about you?
Lord, again, what a privilege to be here. What a privilege to have been here for seven years. We thank you for the work that you're doing in us. We thank you that we can look ahead and see that you're uh, positioning us for future ministry in this community. Lord, I pray you would continue to develop a, a delight in the word in us, a desire for fellowship with one another, that we would love to hear the word preached, that we would love to sing deep, theologically rich, doctrinally correct songs, that we would be willing to go out and share with others who don't know you, that we would love to spend time with each other. Oh, Lord, make all those things true of us. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to be a people who are centered on your gospel. I pray that the gospel message is heard loud and clear here week in and week out. I pray, Lord, that it's something that we all know deep in us that we can share. And, Lord, I pray that you would bear much fruit through Grace Chapel Baptist Church in year eight of our ministry. And I pray that you and you alone would get the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're actually going to sing All Glory Be to Christ, so you stand up and do that. I'll be down in the front worshiping with you. If you'd like to pray or talk, happy to do that.